The door clicks open softly, and he calls my name. He says a bright hello and tells me about his day. Clearly, he has wound a bit tightly this evening, but after a few minutes, he is able to relax. He pours a drink and tells me how much he appreciates what a good listener I am and how I never argue or try to interrupt him to talk about myself. In return, I simply offer my continued, undivided attention. That's just how I am. From the kitchen, the clatter of pots and pans penetrates the silence, and he starts to whistle while rhythmically chopping something that sounds crisp and effortless. A pepper, maybe? I stay in my place, as is my way, showing my love with quiet devotion. He tells me it comforts him just having me here. He says that even though I am quiet, he knows I'm always listening and always there for him when he needs me. And I am. I can't help it. The floorboards creak and silverware taps down on the table. He loves a sit-down meal. Everyone is always busy, rushing around in their selfish lives, ignoring the rest of the world as it passes by. Not me. He helps me to the table. My back has been a bother recently, but eventually it lands in a steady position. It saddens him that I have trouble sitting sometimes, but no one makes it through this life without scars. Speaking of scars, the deep red line on my neck has gone black and he finds this upsetting. He comes to take a closer look and my back gives way, slamming my head into the table with a sickening crack. As I slide to the floor, my milky eyes and dilated pupils never break their steadfast gaze. Devotion like mine comes at a price, and it's a one-time fee. It is clear that this simply won't do anymore. I'll be gone by morning, a collection of embers in the wind. No one will know, though. For my kind, as they say, tell no tales. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. from the perspective of a corpse before. No, you did a great job. Thank you so much. <laughs> right when you said quiet, like, be quiet, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> well, you know the stories that you I knew do. where. <laughs> I knew it. I was like, Leslie's going to get this quick, but I don't know if everybody else will. <laughs> so, if I fooled just five of you until the point where I talk about, like, milky eyes and stuff, yeah. I feel like I've won. <laughs> so report back. <laughs> hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, fiends. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> the week off was definitely necessary to catch up on our lives, but I really missed this. I did too. Uh-huh. I was so sad that I didn't get to see you or yep. do fun writing exercises like figure out how to speak in the voice of a corpse without imbuing it with senses or giving away the secret that it was in fact a corpse. Yes. You did a great job. <laughs> That was fun this week. Uh, I had a lovely, albeit rainy, time in Salem. 
It yeah, rained it so much. so nice, though. It was really nice. And I couldn't, like, do, like, a lot of things where I videoed or anything mm-hmm. because it poured the whole time. <laughs> you were just in your hotel room. <laughs> no, we did stuff, but yeah, I yeah. couldn't have had my phone out because it was raining. Well, that's what I mean. What you videoed was like, Oh, it's just me, yeah. like, here's some facts. <laughs> so I'll try harder next time or with something else. But you know what? The Lizzie Borden house is awesome. Okay. And I recommend you all go. The owners of the house very much believe that Lizzie was not guilty, by the way. Oh. Which uh, I I liked a lot. Mm -hmm. And there's more about that in my What the Friday this week, so you can hear that. Well, and I I always like – so they're obviously – almost a historical society. It is a museum mm-hmm. kind of, right? So yeah. um, the fact that she wasn't found guilty, mm-hmm. I think is important for the tour guides to stay on that Yeah, belief. and they do, they do, the guy that gave our tour, I think his name was Rick. I'll have to double check and I'll correct if I'm wrong. He was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And um, he just seemed to actually like in his core really believe that she didn't do it. That's nice. Yeah, yeah, it was, and they have this box on the um, shelf, like a not a dresser, like a shelf in one of the rooms because it's a bed and breakfast, as we've mentioned before. And um, they say if you leave coins in it, it like kind of satisfies Andrew Borden's spirit, and he won't bother you while you're in the room. Okay. And they take all those coins, and they you know like clear it out, and then once a year they make a donation to like the animal outreach in fall river in lizzie's name using that money yeah so i thought that was really a cool thing uh so yeah i had (laughs) i had the space set aside for us to make witty comments about the election but i'm pretty tapped out i'm tapped yeah i'm I'm very like (laughs) couldn't be happier and when i wrote this it was like day three of no news (laughs) so stressed out and had such a hard time focusing on anything, but, like, good times. Also, between now and the time we release on Tuesday, um, anything could happen. I don't think it will. But, again, I wrote yeah. this days ago. Um, I feel we like could be we'll... coming to you live from our purge bunker. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, for the moment, I will say, man, that was a stressful time. But thank you, Philadelphia. I have always loved yes, you. Yes, Georgia. Yeah, Georgia's still not still not, not there, there but quite like, yet. They're I'm, almost. I'm proud of them. I am proud of them too. <laughs> but um, I went to school in Philly and lived there for four years, mm-hmm. so I have like a certain amount of Philadelphia pride. And Philly's always been my home city because I lived in South Jersey my home, whole right. life. So I felt like intense pride towards Philadelphia, especially when people were like, we're going to go storm the castle in Philly. And my thought was immediately, have you ever seen Philly? Do you know anything about Philly? Yeah. They will kill you all. They will eat you alive in the street and people will cheer. <laughs> it's not a thing. So, okay, that's topical fun. <laughs> Just a little business as per usual. Uh, first, patrons, we did not forget about our sadly rained out Pine Barrens trip, all that planning and it poured. I know. Um, expect an email about rescheduling. I think this week we can probably reschedule. Yeah. We'll talk to our patrons and see. Yeah. Uh, if you're confused about the statement I just made, let me explain. If you head on over to Patreon and look up We Would Be Dead, you can support us for just a few dollars a month, and that support is rewarded with lots of fun extras like our monthly live campfire stories, which has made its transition to Patreon this month. So if you're not a patron, you cannot see our live event. Uh, You also get access to our monthly mini podcast, 30-Minute Horror Movies, and this month's is a doozy. I'm so excited. I'm so excited, too. You will also get uh, periodic discounts on our merch, which you'll want to keep an eye on for Christmas because mm-hmm. we've got some exciting things coming up. 
invitations to our field trips, uh, rain notwithstanding, Zoom meetups, uh, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and much, much more. Your donations are what move us forward, and we couldn't be more grateful for your support. Thank you for being a fiend. Yes. I can't wait till all of that song comes know, out one, one day. day. My cat's eating, so you might hear cat crunches. <laughs> poor Jean can't get them out. Speaking of which, we hit 10,000 downloads. What? what? Yeah. Which, um, that really did help our immortal souls shine like we like them to. Yes. However, nothing really feeds our inner beauty demons like first-person validation. So if you have not done so already and you would like to, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really does mean the absolute world to us and at present is the only way we can really move forward in this industry. And actually, there is a third and extremely easy way you can help us out. Sharing is caring, fiends. If we post something you like, give it a share. Please. Because if your friends see it, they might not be our friends too, and that's more people. We appreciate all the shares as well. And if we can turn your friends into fiends, our happy little family just gets bigger and more fun. So lend a hand. Fantastic. Finally, we have lots of things planned for the holiday season, but we also believe in the power of large autumnal dinners. So stand by for holiday shenanigans because they are coming. But first, eat turkey with your quarantine and fall asleep on the couch for a little while while we prepare. Cool. I think that's everything. Everything for me. Do you have some announcements? No. No, you're good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, then uh, uh, any merch updates? We're good. Um, yeah, we're good. Okay. Uh, some some items have gotten shipped out. Oh, perfect. And we do have uh, items left in the storage, so definitely go look. And um, once those dwindle down a bit more, then I can reorder more. But we have some fun holiday items coming out, too. Oh, I am so excited for that. I want all of them everywhere all the time. Yeah, keep your, <laughs> keep your eyes out, guys. These are very, very cool. You're not going to want to miss out on it. Okay, on with the show. It is February 8th, 1983, and the residents of Number 3 Cranley Gardens, located in a small, quiet, and rather suburban section of London, had been annoyed with plumbing problems for some time. Water had been backing up in their drains, and the pipes, it would seem, were woefully clogged. Several residents had called the building supervisor, one outspoken man had called angrily on more than one occasion, and so management figured that something had better be done. They called Dino Rod, which is such a fun name for a company. Yes. <laughs> I feel like he should, that should be a superhero. There goes Dino Rod. <laughs> he unclogs drains. Wow. Yeah. But this is a local company that specializes in the clearing out of drains, and they sent out a man named Michael Catran to assess the situation. Michael's met with a few put-out tenants of numbered 23 Cranley Gardens who just wanted their drains to work properly again. He spoke with one agitated man who had made several phone calls previously. Michael agreed to do his best to help them out and went out to the side of the house where a manhole was located. Now, they always call this a manhole cover, but it was like a drain for the building, and one man lifts the cover. So it cannot be our version of a manhole because a manhole cover weighs like a billion pounds and you yeah. need several people. I think it's just like a, almost like a flap. Like they yeah, were just they, able to well, lift it. One person can pick it up and it's, yeah. it's their drain, but they do refer to it in this and every version of this is a manhole cover. Mm-hmm. Just to just to make that clear for our United States listeners who like me who are like, manholes are too heavy. <laughs> <laughs> Not for dino rods. Not- <laughs> that was good. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> You get like 25 points for that. <laughs> yes. Michael lifted the cover of this drain slash manhole um, 
to discover that the pipe was completely clogged with a pale, gummy substance he he immediately remarked looked like human flesh and several small bones. I love how he knew that right away. I know. He's like, that's people. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Betty didn't anticipate being completely and irretrievably traumatized that morning when he went to work. Oof. He's a drain guy. (laughs) That's not what you find. A few of the tenants had gathered around to see what on earth had caused them such a headache in the past few weeks and were also shocked at what they saw, though not the agitated man who made all the phone calls. He looked at the carnage and remarked that it merely looked like someone had flushed their Kentucky Fried Chicken. Mm -hmm. So today I'm here to ruin Doctor Who and KFC for everyone because I'm a monster. (laughs) You are the worst villain. I am terrible this week. (laughs) And who do we think was right in their assumptions? Clearly it was Dino Rod. <laughs> Dino Rod for the win. Dino Rod Michael, who was no fool. He replaced the drain cover and called his boss, Gary Wheeler. At this point, it was dusk, and the unusual substance was already located in a dark hole, so Michael and Gary decided to return first thing in the morning to further assess the situation. Now, you're probably pretty outraged at this moment, and so was I the first hundred times I heard this story. Now I'm kind of numb. Why would you not immediately call the damn cops? They're like, this drain is full of probably people. I gotta come back tomorrow. The cops weren't called yet? No, they don't call them until the next day. Okay. At least in what I read. I mean, it would make a lot more sense, but they were like, it's dusk and we can't see much because it's getting dark, so we'll come back tomorrow. Because they come back the next morning at 7.30. Okay. And it's 1983. We got flashlights. I don't know. I w- so just for a counter because again this yeah could no be, go ahead. I, so I I watched um the this mini series, so it it could be just wrong in going with something, but yeah. it was very simple where it was actually Dino Rod would have called them mm-hmm. to be like this looks like people yeah and then so the cops came but then they were like we can't do anything until tomorrow so then they came back the next day yeah and all the recounts I've read it says that. Dino Rod came back the next morning, and then they called the cops when they confirmed, well, the, mm-hmm. wait, we'll get there. Yeah. But, but okay. they, like, called the cops the next day. And that's what the guy in the interviews in the documentary said, because they talked to, okay. to Dino Rod himself. Okay. <laughs> and, and, I mean, if I, I – mean, I could be wrong. And if, if I am, um, and we confirm your side of it from the miniseries, mm-hmm. we'll tell you guys next week. Because, surprise, yeah. this is a two-parter. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't want it to be, but there's so much. It had to be. Uh, I couldn't tell you why they didn't get a flashlight and power through, but thankfully these guys are not the hapless idiots we frequently run into in stories like this. You know, like the cops that stepped around the bodies in Dahmer's house and told him to put his boyfriend to bed. Or the cops in Cheshire, Connecticut, who prioritized a roadblock over after actual human lives. No, these guys are going to come through for us yet. We just have to wait until the next day. That night, the residents of 23 Cranley Gardens heard a lot of noise coming from the top floor flat and carrying out to the side yard where the drain was located. Then the next morning, as promised, at 7.30 sharp, Michael and Gary returned. When they opened the manhole cover this time, though, they were surprised to find it, quote, sparkling. And he makes, like, a joke in the documentaries I watched. And I watched three documentaries um, where he's like, if a manhole could ever be sparkling, this one was. <laughs> Dino Rod. He's Dino so funny. R- he's hilarious. Someone had come overnight and scooped out the ominous contents and disposed of them in a non-drain manner. But Michael was not to be outsmarted. No one messes with Dino Rod. No. (laughs) This man reached his hand inside the drain, his bare hand, 
felt along the sides, and sure enough found more chunks of this mysterious gory substance and a few pieces of bones. He pulled them out into the light of day, put them in plastic bags, and then called the damn cops. All right. Yep. But that's not all for Michael. I told you he winds up being kind of a superhero. Michael also worked out that the drain was fed from several pipes and the chunks of gore came from a pipe that led to the flat on the top floor. So this detective work was all him. Okay. The cops come in later and do a whole lot more, but like, he really got it going. Right. This plumber casually calls up the cops and is like, yes, hello, I've done your whole ass job. Please come and get this obvious murderer who lives upstairs. Bye. (laughs) Dino Rod forever. Shortly after the call was made, Detective Chief Inspector, which is a UK title that we don't have that sounds like the king of the police. (laughs) (laughs) And from henceforward, we will probably just talk to him about as, we'll call him um, DCI as his, that's that's how they use it. So Detective Chief Inspector Peter J. and two accompanying officers whose names are rarely mentioned uh, arrive on the scene. They were able to find out from the other tenants of the flat that the top floor belonged to a man named Dennis Nilsen and that he was currently at work. Okay. The bagged bits that Dino Rod retrieved mm-hmm. uh, were immediately sent off to the mortuary at Hornsey, which is like a neighboring town, the next, the closest town that had a mortuary, which is, it's a district of North London. And they were examined immediately by pathologist Professor David Bowen. He is amazing at his job. Professor Bowen fairly quickly was able to inform police that the remains were, in fact, human, and that one particular piece of flesh, he concluded, had been from a human neck because it bore a ligature mark, Mm. which is the luckiest break in the whole world. One, they retrieved one long strip of flesh, and that one strip of flesh was the place where a strangulation mark was located on this body. And Professor Bowen was... Keen enough to immediately notice notice that. Right. It's like, that's from a neck. That neck was strangled. You got a murder. Uh, have I explained the term ligature before? I couldn't remember. I'm not sure I have to because all of our little murder monkeys are pretty voracious case studiers. But just in case anyone doesn't know, and there's no shame in not knowing, I'll tell you. A ligature is something that is used to bind things extremely tightly. In the crime world, it means restraints or strangle tools. In the medical world, it's more closely related to a tourniquet or it cuts off supply for blood vessels and stuff like that. Either way, it will most assuredly leave a mark. And that's the piece they found clinging to the walls of the drain. I will put pictures of the pieces found in the drain in the photo suite. It is really gross. And I will issue a warning before the photo comes up like I did in the Ed Gein photo suite. This is your warning. (laughs) It's gonna be gross. Armed with this information, DCIJ and his backup waited outside of Dennis's flat, ready to apprehend a terrifying monster. Police did not know what they would be in for once they reached the attic flat. Would this man be enormous? Was he armed? Would he come out fighting? This is a person who presumably reduced another human into tiny little pieces and flushed them down the toilet. It may sound odd, but I think our greatest hope is that this man would be outwardly terrifying, right? right. You want or this- like a reptilian. Yes. You want this guy to be a monster. <laughs> yeah. That he would be someone we immediately recognize as dangerous because that way we could all say, well, I, I can tell that person is bad news and I, it would never have happened to me. But instead. <sighs> Not the case. DCIJ and his officers stood outside the attic apartment in number three Cranley Gardens and waited to find out. When he finally approached, Dennis Nilsson was nothing like they thought. 
He was slim and an unassuming civil servant in a suit and steel rim spectacles, which is how he is described in every single recounting of this case I have read. So apparently they ran out of adjectives in the dictionary that day, and everyone just used the same ones. And most disarmingly of all, he was quite polite. Mm -hmm. And if you guys have seen the pictures I put up, um, he does look like David Tennant. so much. Like, oh, man. He plays him in the miniseries, which we're going to talk about in part two, and Leslie really read up on um, and watched. I didn't watch it because I didn't want it to color this week's episode, but, like, you'll Mm -hmm. get more from Leslie next week. But he does. I'm sorry. I told you I was going to ruin Doctor Who. So sad. And he really looks so much like him. Because David Tennant has been in several other really creepy. He's been other creepy characters. Mm -hmm. And I would say that those other characters were much creepier than this. Weirdly, it just it it wasn't as unassuming. This one to me was just like, oh, this is really good acting. Okay. So I admired him. Good for doing it. But, uh, but yeah, it's a very close resemblance. Yeah. It's uncanny. Their voices, too, because they're both Scottish. So they, yes, both, they sound know. so yeah. much the same. <laughs> DCIJ and the accompanying, ooh, I'm doing good, officers introduced themselves to Nilsson and explained that they were there because of the blockages in the building's drains, which they had traced back to his flat. Dennis acted cool and concerned. After all, remember the, quote, concerned man who had made many complaints and said the human remains looked like KFC, that was him. What? He reported his own crimes. But this, it's nuts. I know. This isn't like a Kemper crisis of conscious moment. It's more subtle and unaware. And we'll get into that in part two. Did he call it in or write it in? He called it in. Called it in? Yeah, he talked to people. Dennis asked if DCIJ's officers were health inspectors. And he said, no, they were police officers. Mm -hmm. Dennis asked why police officers would be concerned with the clog in his drain. DCIJ then demanded entrance into Dennis's flat, and he obliged. The three officers and Dennis entered the squalid apartment and were immediately hit with the smell of decay, at which point DCIJ knew it was time to lay all the cards on the table. He told Dennis the clog in the drains had been confirmed as human flesh, even though most of it disappeared overnight. Dennis replied, quote, good grief, how awful. Mm. In response, Jay replied, don't mess about. Where's the rest of the body? Or an American, cut the shit. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Dino Rod wasn't there to rephrase it for him. <laughs> now, I have seen interviews with DCIJ where he repeats this line. Yeah. And let me assure you all, it's just as good as you think it oh, is. Perfect. Because when he, he like, I feel like he likes retelling it and he like kind of yells. It's really good. Mm -hmm. But as you might not expect, following that one question, Dennis immediately caves and ended his spectacular run as innocent and concerned man number three in this production of Disgusting Murders at Cranley Gardens and pointedly told the office, pointed the officers to a wardrobe across the room and told them there would be remains in two black plastic bin bags. Bin bags are trash bags. I like bin bags so much better, but, you know. (laughs) So, cut the shit. Where are the bodies? They're over there. They're over there. I know I love that. Cut the shit. All right, they're in the closet. Yeah, one one little threat, and he was like, right there. Yeah. Then, the officers looked at the bags, recognized the smell, and said they could save that shit for the medical examiners. Ooh. They didn't even open the bags. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) What a delightfully British move. I love this. 
Yes, I, I trust- mean I hate this, but I love this. <laughs> I love I love the UK. I do too. These officers are like, yes, I trust those are full of awful rotting bodies, but I do not need to sully my evening further with confirming that matter. Mm. That's for another department. Good day. Good day. Cheerio. It's so polite. The officers asked Dennis if, Dennis if there were any more body parts they might find in his rotting pit of an apartment that he seemed perfectly okay living in, and he chillingly responded, quote, It's a long story. It goes back a long time. I'll tell you everything. I want it off my chest. Not here. At the police station. He's so dramatic. So dramatic. He was then arrested and cautioned on suspicion of murder. And we don't caution people here, but they do in the UK, I mm-hmm. guess. Well, they're very polite. They are very polite. Before being taken to Hornsey Police Station, as he was escorted to the police station, officers asked Dennis whether the remains in his flat belonged to one person or two, and Dennis transitioned from concerned man number three to terrifyingly soft-spoken psychopath in this chilling drama by staring out of the window of the police car and replying, 15 or 16 since 1978. Ugh. What? It must have been like... Oh, fuck. For these detectives, it's just, like, never-ending. Right. It, it's just like uh, like a roll of film. Like, when you open it and it starts unrolling mm-hmm. and it just, like, can't. It just goes and goes and goes yeah. and goes. <laughs> That's what this is. That evening, Detective Superintendent Chambers. So we have another DCI because the first one was like, no, thank you. There's the bags. Goodbye. <laughs> um, Accompanied DCIJ and Professor Bowen, so he was still there. And Professor Bowen was like the superhero that identified that one piece of flesh. They all went to Cranley Gardens, where the plastic bags were removed from the wardrobe and taken to Hornsey Mortuary. The uh, one bag was found to contain two dissected torsos, one of which had been vertically dissected, and a shopping bag containing various internal organs. The second bag contained a human skull almost completely devoid of flesh, a severed head, and a torso with arms attached but missing hands. Both heads were found to have been subject to, and I hate this word, I'm going to throw up everywhere, moist heat. Yeah. Yep. Well, they were boiled. Yeah, we're getting there. Okay. Don't worry, I'm going to unpack that little bit for you. In this case, first of all, the word dissected only means that they were cut up and, like, taken apart. I know that term has decidedly science classy Dr. Satan vibes. And what happened there was absolutely evil and shocking, but it was not experimental. He wasn't, like, Mm -hmm. doing things. It was done merely to dispose of the bodies, which we will explain further later on. And the... moist heat that was referred to is a nice way of saying that he boiled the heads to make them soft. I feel like it's not the nice way to say that. It isn't. You're right. But I feel like the people who wrote it thought it was. Okay. (laughs) Too British there. (laughs) Too British. Trust me, I'm not saying he was better for not going extremely wild and unwinding intestines and wearing them like a feather boa. Mm -hmm. That's just a different kind of weird and wild And it's our job to explain the difference. Right. When I first heard that he dissected the bodies, I imagined it as him actually going in and cleaning them out, kind of like a Carl Kanzler type of thing, like cleaning them out. And then that's what was like being discarded. Well, he did some of that. Yeah. But that's what I thought was a lot more of what he was doing versus like him just having bags of like that bag of intestines in there. Like Mm -hmm. I didn't think that he'd had that. Yeah. So when I- Well, if you hear dissected and you think like frog in science class or cadaver in a laboratory, you don't Mm -hmm. think the word in, in and of itself just means to take apart. 
Right. And so they use it in that regard. But we have such like – it's colored with so much for most of us that mm-hmm. I felt like I had to make the distinction. Yeah. No, I'm uh, glad you did. Well, thank you. And so the investigation began. Detectives called it, quote, a murder in reverse. They had the suspect, the evidence, and a forthcoming confession, but they didn't have the victims. Even the pieces they had at that point were not yet able to be identified. And so, on February 10th, Dennis was interviewed by police, and he was more than willing to tell them everything he could. His memory is spotty, conveniently at some times. Later, Dennis would consistently refer to his arrest as, quote, the day that help came which may sound sympathetic, but I assure you was just an emotionally manipulative phrase a narcissist would be quite aware landed well. Yeah. I don't like him. I don't like him either. I'm always so even about, and so are you. We're both mm-hmm. so, like, about finding out what why this person did what mm-hmm. they did, and I, hmm, I don't like this and one. And there's more reasons oh, why. I get heated later. Don't yeah. worry. Mm-hmm. In this confession, Dennis first claims that he only killed 12 people. Like when he gets into the police office, he's like, oh, no, 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 no. I only killed 12. I used the number 15 originally because I like the way it sounded. You know, how it is. Kind of like the whole vagina vulva debate we had a few weeks ago. yeah. (laughs) Except no, it isn't because these are human lives and the amount matters and who they are matters. After this clunky beginning, though, the confession really starts rolling. Dennis told the detectives that there were further human remains stored in a tea chest in his living room, which is just like a wooden box, and there were other remains inside an upside-down drawer in his bathroom that was disguised as a shelf. So if you, like, took a big drawer out of a dresser, like a long one, and you turned it upside down, that's what this was. Okay. And when they bring it out, it looks like a coffin. This drawer is very strange. The dismembered body parts would make up the bodies of three men, he said, all of whom he killed by strangulation, usually but not always, he claimed, with a necktie. One victim was a man whose name he couldn't remember, a fact that he said he felt bad about. All right. Sure, Dennis. Another victim he only knew as John the Guardsman, and the third he identified as Stephen Sinclair. So now we're getting somewhere. One confirmed body would be enough to keep Dennis in jail if they could indeed make this confirmation. Detectives were therefore immediately sent back to Cranley Gardens to investigate further, a task that all of them would later admit was the worst and most traumatizing of their collective careers. Like, if you watch the documentaries, these cops talking about this were like, never before, never again, it was awful. Everything was as Dennis had stated. They found an overturned drawer masquerading as a shelf with the lower half of a torso and a pair of legs in an advanced state of decay therein. There was also a tea chest, which, like I said, is just like a medium-sized wooden box, really, that contained a section of a torso, a skull, and some assorted other bones. Now, there's also—we're going to go into, like, the crime scene investigation more in part two as well, because I have, like, the police statements and stuff. They also say they, like, walked in and found a skull in a pot, Mm. which is weird and misplaced, but it is a piece of information that is, like, a cop says in the documentary. Okay. I will go into that more when we talk about it. Um, Again, the smell was formidable. For the life of me, I cannot understand how his downstairs neighbors weren't affected by it. I know, yeah. It's an attic apartment. Yeah. It had to smell. And I, when we get into some, like, how this all happened, too, I have some, like, thoughts about that as well. (laughs) Absolutely. The remains were rushed off to the mortuary, again, to Professor Superstar, to begin the process of being put back together and identified. It was imperative that in the span of 48 hours, they identify at least one victim so they had enough evidence to charge and detain Dennis because UK laws state that identification is necessary. 
Mm-hmm. I think like they had to, they had to have like a strong link to charge him with murder. Like we found, you confessed it. We found the guy. That's how the guy was murdered. This who the, is who the guy is. Right. And they needed that within forty eight hours. Ooh. So the, cl- the clock was ticking. And this is only the beginning of his confession. I know. He also stated that beginning in December of 1978, he had killed 12 or 13, whatever, more or less, men at his former address, 195 Melrose Avenue. 12 or 13. He couldn't remember exactly how many, and he couldn't remember their names. Dennis also admitted to having unsuccessfully attempted to kill approximately seven other people who had either escaped or, in the case of Carl Stotter, had been at the brink of death but had been revived and allowed to leave his residence. Mm. Poor Carl Stotter did not walk away from this harrowing ordeal unscathed, though. After Dennis got him extremely intoxicated, strangled him in bed, and then dragged him in the tub to be drowned, something came over him, and he revived Carl and took him to the hospital. Unfortunately, you just cannot always come back from an incident like that. And for the rest of his short life, Carl suffered from terrible PTSD and depression, eventually dying by suicide at just, oh, it was only 52 oh, yeah, okay. years old. Carl was survived by his sister, Julie, whose son went on to also die by suicide at just 13, stating that his own depression scared him and that he did not want to live on as Uncle Carl had. So sad. Yeah. In case anyone thought that the effects of crimes such as these ended at the victims, they do not. We send our love and deepest sympathies to all the victims in this case, even the ones nobody could name. Because Mm -hmm. no, not all of his victims have been identified to this day. Yeah. Just so tragic. And in one of the documentaries I watched, and we don't have a place to really go into this, but they do explain it was because at the time there was a lot of like disenfranchised youth Mm -hmm. in London. And... It was easier to get away with people no one would report as missing. Right. I'll go into that a little bit when we talk about that scene. Excellent. I look forward to hearing it. The same day Cranley Gardens was emptied of all remains, Dennis himself accompanied detectives to his former residence at Melrose Avenue. Once there, he showed them three locations in the rear garden where he had burned large quantities of human remains. In the excavation efforts that follow, over a thousand human bones were recovered in the next few days. So they started digging and they just kept pulling them up. It should be noted that Dennis seems to relish his confession, taking days drawing the police maps and describing in detail where they would find remains. He remembered what he had done with everybody, but not their names. And this key fact, I think, really sums up a lot of Dennis Nelson. He remembers what he did. He did not remember who he did it to, really. Yeah. And when they're interviewing the police and the investigators that um, dug up all these bones, they say they were just dumbfounded because they're only finding, like, burn marks and bones, and they had no idea of how many bodies they had found even. So we found a 1,000 bones. There are over a little over 200 bones in the human body, but we don't know if they're complete. We don't know how many people are here. So it was really just kept getting more and more surprising. While the ongoing investigation plowed ever forward, our old friend, super plumber, dino rod, Michael Catran, began to speak to the media. Apparently, he shopped his tail around, and the mirror was the only paper that really took him up on his offer. And they ran a story about Dennis the very next day as front page news. So now the heat was on. And um, 
the mirror is like pretty proud of this in documentaries. They're like, well, we had front page news, but the next day everybody had a boat. We had it first. Right. So good for you. And the police are like, F you all. Fuck. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Professor Bowen at Hornsey Mortuary worked nonstop and was eventually able to recover fingers that, of course, yielded fingerprints that could be positively identified as belonging to Stephen Sinclair, the one name we got in the confession. And with that, authorities were able to charge Dennis Nilsson with murder. Over the next few days, Dennis was interviewed 16 times for a total of over 30 hours, wherein he went into detail about how he managed to commit these heinous crimes. But when asked why he did them, Dennis could only reply, quote, I'm hoping you will tell me that. Oh. In which I hate, in which David Tennant delivers perfectly. He does. It's identical. It's awful. It's interesting to me because it it's such a, it's a haunting statement. Mm-hmm. But it's also that that's where it's con- it's hard because if he is somebody that is confused, like mm-hmm. why I don't know why I did this, like so I don't think he is. I think he's manipulating no, the situation. Totally, totally. But either even so, like he he just might not know. Like he might not. Maybe he might you guys not. Can just tell me. But I think part <laughs> of him was like, if I say this, I'll sound like a helpless, crazy person, as yeah. opposed to sounding like a plotting criminal. Mm-hmm. I'll sound like my demons just took over and it happened and I couldn't help it. And I'm also a victim, which he's not. He's the worst. <laughs> I told you I don't like this guy. It's so hard. <laughs> and he, but he really is good for a chilling one-liner. Yes. So now in order to understand this case, we will go back in time and look at Dennis as a person and trace his evolution from happy child to dark and obsessive murderer and reveal what actually happened in his apartments and who the men were that he killed, the ones that we can identify. Sadly, like I said, we can't really tell you who all of them are. Dennis Andrew Nilsson was born on November 23rd, 1945 in Fraserburgh, Aberdeenshire, Scotland to Elizabeth Duffy White. Don't get me started on how much I hate that his mother's name is Betty White. I hate it so oh, much. Oh, I, I know. She goes by Betty. She goes by yeah. Betty White. I saw that in an article and I got real sad. Right? It's awful. And his father, whose name is Olav Magnus Morksheim, but he adopted the surname Nelson and no one ever explains why. Yeah. He's like, mm, I like this one better. It's fine. It's all right. I'm assuming it was like a military protection thing, and we'll get there in a minute. Okay. But this is just an assumption. His father was a Norwegian soldier who had traveled to Scotland in 1940 as part of the Free Norwegian Forces, also known as the Norwegian Resistance. These soldiers fought against Nazi occupation of Norway. So that's good. Yeah. Right? Dad's a good guy. Everything seems to be relatively morally sound so far. We're down with anti-Nazis. Way to go. For sure. After a brief courtship, he married Elizabeth White in May of 1942, and they moved into her parents' house. The marriage between Dennis's parents was difficult, and after the birth of her third child, Dennis's mother, Betty, concluded that she had, quote, rushed into marriage without thinking. So she had three babies and then was like, I should rethink this. Girl, you do that quicker. Yeah. You don't wait for three babies. I'd be like, eh. I know. <laughs> the couple divorced in 1948. Betty's parents, Andrew and Lily White, had never approved of their daughter's choice of husband and were supportive of her um, her divorce. So they were like, yeah, you should divorce that guy. He sucks. And they support, supported her following their divorce. 
Dennis's grandparents, therefore, had a big hand in raising him in the early portion of his life. Dennis was especially close to his grandfather and went everywhere with him. Dennis and his grandfather, who was a fisherman, would take a great many long walks together on the beach. And when his grandfather was out at sea working, Dennis said, quote, Life would be empty for me until he returned. Oh. I know, so he loved grandpa. Dennis called his grandfather his, quote, great hero and protector. And in return, his grandfather loved him very, very much. Again, the divorce was a little bump in the road, but still, things are pretty okay for Dennis as of now in the story. Then in 1951, while out on a fishing excursion in the North Sea, Dennis Nilsson's beloved grandfather had a heart attack and died at just 62 years old. So remember, he was born in 1945. This makes him, like, six. He's little. In what Dennis would later describe as his, quote, most vivid childhood recollection, his crying mother came to him after his grandfather had died and asked whether he wanted to see him because his grandfather's body had obviously been returned to his family and then laid out in the home for a viewing. And that was commonplace back then. We've talked about funerary customs and stuff mm-hmm. like that. That's, it's not weird that they had the body in some sources, it says, on their kitchen table. But that's really normal. It's not. Yeah, that's, it's again. It's supposed to be on display. Yeah, again, that's not weird. It's just yeah. wherever they were able to put him. And Dennis said that, yes, he would like to see him. Six-year-old Dennis would like to see, of course, his beloved grandfather. So he was taken into the room where his grandfather lay in an open coffin. As he gazed upon the body, his mother told him that his grandfather was sleeping and added that his grandfather had, quote, gone to a better place. Don't ever tell a child their dead grandparent is sleeping. That's way too confusing for me to even unpack at this moment. But you probably all understand this. Like, they're going to ask when they're waking up and why you're taking them away. Right. And then be terrified that when they go to sleep, they'll be hauled off in a coffin and buried. Yeah. You can't. I know. I was mad that they did that and then never explained it. They never talked to him. Nope. Nope, they were like, he's sleeping, he's in a better place. And then that was it. Mm-hmm. And now and I also get 1951 was not a time wherein they considered anybody's future mental health. They just said, what's going to be easier for me? This is it, I'm done. But still, it sucks. This both horrified, this event both horrified and fascinated Dennis. And psychologists would later go on to say that this is where his connection with death and love formed. I know we haven't gotten into the full rundown of what he did to those bodies yet, but it is coming, and then you will understand what I'm saying here. After this, Dennis, a usually adventurous child, became quiet and withdrawn, which is also normal. He just experienced a major death in his family and a traumatic event. Yeah, he's going to be a little weird about it. And Dennis began taking his long walks on the beach alone as a little kid. Mm -hmm. Cool. One of these walks in 1954 or 1955, they don't have like a pinpoint on it, so he's 9 or 10, Dennis somehow became submerged beneath the water. So I don't know, I didn't read any accounts where they said how this happened to him. He was just walking on the beach and he somehow like got sucked out to sea or something. And he was almost like dragged away with the current. He initially panicked, flailing his arms and shouting, claiming that he went on to, quote, gasp for air, which wasn't there. He recalled believing that his grandfather was about to arrive and pull him out before experiencing a sense of tranquility. His life was saved by another young person who dragged him ashore. This brush with drowning would stick with him and resurface later in life. Shortly after this incident, Dennis's mother and her three children moved out of his grandparents' home and into their own flat. 
Betty later married a builder named Andrew Scott. Like, come on! First they drag in Betty White and now Andrew Scott? Who's Andrew Scott? Andrew Scott is Moriarty in Sherlock. Oh, I'm so bad with names. And so. and hot and hot priest in Fleabag. Yes. Okay. God. I love him. I love him so much. So this is brutal. Mm. Betty had four more children with Andrew Scott in as many years because wouldn't we all? Boy. We sure would. Although Dennis initially resented his stepfather, whom he viewed as an unfair, unfair, unflair, no flair, disciplinarian, (laughs) he gradually came to respect him. The family moved to the neighboring village of Stricken, 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 I didn't look that one up, in 1955. As Dennis got older, he slowly began to realize that he might be gay. Okay. Like, I kind of like boys more than girls. Which is still normal, but here is where the left-hand turn comes in. When this happened and his brain, like, he started to hit puberty and he thinks maybe he's attracted to boys, he was confused and thought that maybe he felt that way because he was attracted to men who had similar facial features to his younger sister because he loved his sister. So, Mm. to test this theory, while she was sleeping, he molested her. (gasps) Mm -hmm. But it did nothing for him. I'm sure it traumatized the shit out of her, but Dennis was unfazed, saying that at one point in time, an older kid had fondled him and he didn't find it to be unpleasant. Swell. Do you think that happened? I don't know. Do you think he just used it as like an excuse? I think that could be true, but I don't, I I don't know. I mean, like he never brings up the incident again. I mean, I think he molested his sister. No, I know, but. The thing with like somebody touched me and it was fine and maybe it never did. Yeah. But we can only go on his confession because really in this case, that's. That's That's it. That's all all we we have, have. mostly. Feeling like he still wanted to get to the root of what might be really getting him going, he went after his older brother one night, fondling him as he slept. But his older brother woke up and was decidedly not okay with the situation. This tipped his brother off to the fact that maybe Dennis was gay. And as his brother did not like that or being molested in his sleep, he began to bully and mock him in public, calling him hen, which is Scottish slang for girl, and other youths followed suit. So everybody would make fun of him and call him a girl, which is a terrible thing to do, but also, like, you fucking molested your siblings. Yeah. You're going to get some pushback. (laughs) Just a little. I know. know. It might cause some complications. Yeah, just, just a hair. So life wasn't going super well for Dennis at this point, and he suspected that his sexual orientation would continue to not go over well in his rural hometown. So at 14, he joined the armed forces, where he trained as a chef. While in the armed forces, Dennis kept quiet about his sexuality, which seems odd to me, because when one spends 11 years, which is how long Dennis was in, um, in the company of men, and one is attracted to men, you would think something would happen. Right. But it didn't. Something just clicked for me. But. So I had seen that he went into the armed forces mm-hmm. and went in for like a chef job. Yeah. And I was trying to think there was another murderer that also did the same thing. But then I realized it was Mr. Tusk. Not Mr. Tusk. Um, How? <laughs> <laughs> From Tusk. What was his name? How? Yeah. Yeah. My God, that's so good! Like for the whole day today, I was like, "There's, I'm gonna have to ask Holly who the other no, that's murderer so was." Funny. Oh my God, he <laughs> was a chef. Like, yeah, I didn't even think. Oh, I, that didn't even dawn on me. That's <laughs> hilarious. 
Everything is always connected. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> so, you know, in the company of a bunch of men, nothing happened. Well, nothing in the traditional sense. He did go through another harrowing incident, though. Okay. In 1967, he was deployed by the state of Aden, Aden, A-D-E-N, where he again served as a cook. That was like his job in the army. Okay. This posting was more dangerous than his previous postings, and a posting is like where you're deployed, where you're like location. Mm-hmm. Previously, he was in West Germany and Norway, and Dennis later recalled that his regiment um, in Aden had lost several men, often in ambushes en route to the army barracks. So he's in like a scary place now. Dennis himself was kidnapped by a taxi driver who beat him unconscious and placed him in the trunk of his car. Upon being dragged out of the trunk of the taxi, Dennis grabbed a jack handle, which I think is like a tire iron or something, Mm. and knocked the taxi driver to the floor before beating him unconscious. Dennis then took the taxi driver and put him in the trunk of the taxi. Okay. So who's going to drive? I think he walked away. Oh. Just left him there. That's all the information there is on this incident. Again, maybe he made it up. So what did he do again? He just... So he's in a taxi. Yeah. The driver um, ambushes him and knocks him unconscious and puts him in the trunk of the car. Then gets to whatever location they're going to and pulls Dennis out. Dennis fights the guy back and then grabs something on the floor of the car, knocks the driver unconscious, like beats him to a pulp, and then puts the driver in his plate, like where he was, in the trunk of the car and closes it. Mm. So Dennis got away. Gotcha. Crazy turn of events. Totally crazy turn of events. He would think he was Dino Rod or something. I know. <laughs> Nobody can be Dino Rod. Can we have Dino Rod t-shirts? <laughs> I just, I picture, I'm picturing, um, you know, a little cape, obviously, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but the, the dinosaur from Rugrats. <gasps> Reptar. Yeah. <laughs> I love that idea. <laughs> Although he'd have a hard time getting in the drains with his little arms. Have it, should to be be, another- it should just be a dinosaur with a wrench. Or some sort of plumbing tool, like a pipe. Yeah. Dino rod. Dino rod. We did it. With, yeah, with a rod. It's definitely a rod. It's a, but it's plumbing, so it's got to be like a pipe. Yeah. We'll get it. We'll, we'll get there. <laughs> Michaela. <laughs> Stand by, you guys. We're doing it. Dino rod's coming. <laughs> so while to most of us that event would be really awful and traumatizing, to Dennis it was kind of inspiring. You see, in this post, this location where he's now deployed in, he also had the luxury of having his own room for the first time. Usually he was in barracks or shared a room with another another guy. So he freely enjoyed masturbating out in the open all the time in some really weird ways as a result. Nice. Yeah, yeah. He discovered that if he looked at his own naked body in a freestanding mirror, he could position himself so he looks headless. So he couldn't see his own face, just his pale-ass, skinny body. And he would imagine that that was a dead body. And then he would masturbate, pretending he was another person in the mirror. It's like, we like creepy and morbid things. I don't want to fuck them. But then there's like a next level of like, oh. Wait. Wait. There's more of this. Okay. (laughs) And yes, you're right. That is like a tier that I will never achieve. Right. That's for another group. <laughs> yeah, it's for another person at another time. He's imagining himself as a uh, as a headless corpse and jerking off. So that's, yeah, you transcended. Seeing the unconscious taxi driver that he, like, beat 
into unconsciousness helped him realize that what he really wanted was a completely passive partner, a phrase I used in the episode on Jeffrey Dahmer. Someone he could dominate totally, someone who would never resist, someone dead. He wanted a corpse. Dahmer wanted a sex zombie. He wanted a corpse. Right. These fantasies gradually evolved to incorporate imagery within a 19th century oil painting entitled The Raft of Medusa. And I will post this image. Okay. Which depicts an old man holding the limp, nude body of a dead youth as he sits aside the dismembered body of another young male. In his most vividly recalled fantasy, a slender, attractive young blonde soldier who had been recently killed in battle is dominated by a faceless, dirty, gray-haired old man who washed this body before engaging in intercourse with the spread eagle corpse. This is his fantasy. (laughs) I know this is very gross and weird, but that detail is important. Okay. This is... is Nilsson's fantasy. Yeah. Okay. He saw this painting and he was like, you know what would be great? If an old dude saw this dead soldier I saw one time, washed him up, fucked him. So hot. What? <laughs> if I was the guy listening to that. <laughs> Imagine still- finding that out and be like, oh no. Like they were just like sitting around a bonfire No, but the soldier was night. dead. Yeah. And so unless the 16th century painter woke up from his grave and was like, no. And then everybody wait, wait, wait. Was Yeah, like- I know, I know. <laughs> After leaving the army, because we got to be done with that at some point in time, Dennis worked briefly as a police constable, but he hated it. They later interview, like in the documentaries, a man who worked with him, and he's like so dumbfounded that this happened. He's like, he was like a mediocre cop who was totally kept to himself. He was nothing. Wait, do you have why he why he was asked to leave? No, tell me. So again, I don't know if they took like liberties or something, but he was asked can to leave you. because he was found masturbating in the morgue. What? No, yeah. I didn't read that, but I. That's, yeah, so I he mean, was it, there for a year, and they asked him to leave after that. I wonder if that's true. Because I know I've, the document, the the miniseries that you watched was based on true events, but I also know that it was dramatized to because it's a movie. It's got to be interesting, yeah. and it also has to string together. There has right. to be reasons for everything. They can't be like this happened, all done, right? Um. Easily, that could be. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to Google it while I'm going, you can. You can feel free to do yeah. it. It's going to be your turn in like one second, though, so okay. I can Google it for you. Actually, <laughs> so he left the force after I think it was just like nine months, and became a civil servant, which technically, like a police officer, should fall under. But this was more of an office job in the UK. It's the equivalent. I mean, like there's civil servants in the United States too, but it's like being a state employee over here. Okay. Dennis began this job in 1974. Uh, about that same time, he started to explore London's gay scene, or I think it was North London, where he could be himself and have interactions with other men. So, Leslie, why don't you tell us a little bit about this environment? Because it feels fun, and we could use a break. Sure. And while you're doing that, I will try and find out okay. that cop thing, yeah. too. While listening, of course. <laughs> so, London was a lot like New York City in the 70s and 80s. Oh, so fun. Yeah. So, And we've talked a little bit about that as well in one of our – in the drag queen Yes, uh, case. Absolutely. So, um, so if you remember that episode, it's almost identical. That was the same kind of scene. The music was um, 
it was disco into like pop, like Madonna got really big in the early eighties there. And, um, it was, it was fun. But, um, in 1967, the UK ceased the prosecution of men for homosexual acts. Way to go. However, it did not fully decriminalize sexual acts with persons of the same sex. So gay men were still being arrested for kissing in public. Hate crimes against them were often looked past, and communities were showing very little signs of support. Like, everybody was still against them. Many LGBTQ moved to moved or ran away to the cities like London in hopes of finding support in the gay community. Uh, luckily, London was popping with the gay bar and nightclub scene. Be- it was popping. It was popping. I love it. Between the music and the drugs, gay men were able to meet up and feel free to be themselves. Unfortunately, the AIDS epidemic, alcoholism, and drug addiction were uh, was racing through their community. Ugh. Uh, many young gay men and youths living in the city were homeless, jobless, or struggling, and the city didn't seem to care too much about them. So when a nice stranger at a bar offers mm. a drink or a warm meal, they almost don't have an option to say no. Ugh. Yeah. So that was really, because we had talked about it a lot before, but it was, I mean, there were just so many, I mean, there was constant news. Um, yeah. Yeah news articles and uh footage of just these like young men sleeping in sleeping bags on the streets and different like alleyways for them like to kind of be like oh this is like your designated area to be um but it was it was really sad they didn't really have too much and it it really reminded me of New York City because AIDS was like yeah. going through their community and everybody was blaming gay men for it. Yeah. Yeah, they so. called it like the gay plague. It was yes. awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it wasn't uh it wasn't a it, even though they were decriminalizing it a bit, it mm-hmm. still wasn't safe for them and this nightclub scene was the place for them to kind of go out and be themselves and, and you know, some people that had to hide and pretend to be straight during the day, they could go there and be gay at night. What's so unfortunate about that is that, like you said, a lot of younger people and, like, disenfranchised people would would flee to London Mm -hmm. because they'd be like, well, there I'll be okay. mm -hmm. And then they ended up homeless. And, well, and a lot of them were probably kicked out of their homes. Exactly, and they thought that would be a place that was helpful for them. And Mm -hmm. in the documentary I watched, they have a lot of, of like, photographs and stuff of just just young men on the street. Mm -hmm. And... That was their lives. And and then eventually we will cover the umbrella of, and I hate this title, but it applies in cases too, of the less dead. So when someone is a prostitute mm-hmm. or doesn't have family or their family doesn't care about them because they came out as gay and then they left, right? they are not really traceable. No one misses them when they're gone. Right. People well, aren't looking for them. Exactly. And that's what you'll find with this case where they, it's hard for them to yeah. identify these people because there's no one looking for them. There's no one looking for them. And yeah, that's it. It's, there's an outlier in that and I'll get to it. But um, the, also there's a problem with the police assuming that no one was looking for them. Well, that was the other thing. Yeah, it was. Uh, and that was a little bit of, oh, uh, I mean, they, they kept the search going. Yeah. So it was it was quite a push that they had to do in order to keep the search going because Yeah, the, if you lost the, your young gay son in London, 
police nobody, were not looking for no, them. No, they didn't care. Or just the homeless person. They were like, Who, nobody cares about these exactly. people. Exactly. We'll look we for a day one, or so if, yeah. if, if we even find out about them, but we're not going to mm-hmm. go too deep. So for them, if they're just like, we got one person, we're good. And they're like, but we can get more. We need to find out yep. who these people are. No, I agree. So while on this scene, Dennis met a 20-year-old because he was going out to these nightclubs and meeting, seeing these people and experiencing this environment. And he met a 21, a 20, sorry, year old man named David Galachan. Galachan? He saw David as um, David being threatened outside a pub by two other men. So this guy is like being harassed. And Dennis intervenes in the altercation like a big hero and took David home with him. The two men spent the evening together drinking and talking. And Dennis learns that David had recently moved to London, was gay, like a lot of men did this, and he was also unemployed and lived in a hostel. So this guy is like the exact person we were talking about. Yeah. The following morning, David and Dennis agree to live together in a larger residence, like immediately. They're like, we're going to live together. And Dennis, using part of the inheritance bequeathed to him by his father, I guess his father died at some point. It was not noteworthy like his grandfather, immediately resolved to find a bigger house. Several days later, the pair views a vacant ground floor flat at 195 Melrose Avenue, and they decide to move into the property. Dennis had negotiated a deal with the landlord wherein he and David had exclusive use of the garden in the rear of the property, which would prove useful for later activities. And by garden, they mean backyard. The Brits are lovely and they call their yard their garden, and I love it. But it's not like a vegetable patch always. At first, Dennis was happy living with David. The two of them had pet names for each other, and it was David who called Dennis Des. So that's where that comes from. Okay. I'm not going to call him that because it was a cute name his boyfriend called him, and he's fucking garbage, which I don't usually say, but he is. And so we're just going to call him Dennis because that is his name, his government name. The two of them adopted a puppy named Bleep. A silly name for a puppy. It is, yeah. Who Dennis loved intensely. Like when he was apprehended, hemmed by the police, the one thing he said was, please someone like take care of my dog. Yeah. Not, my house is full of corpses. Please feed my dog. Okay. Uh, They also made quite a few home movies. I have seen them. It is unsettling. And they lived pretty much as like a married couple. They had like a kind of average life, the two of them living in their house with their dog. However... And there's a video that I watched of the two of them out in the garden talking about, like, we're going to remodel this house and make it our home. This garden's going to be beautiful. It was just a pile of rubble when we got here. And we did all of this work to make it beautiful because David didn't have a job. Okay. So Dennis was like, oh, you're my little wifey type person. I'm using that word because that term conjures up a certain image that we can all identify with, not because Mm -hmm. I believe that that's what wives do. Oh, is it not, Holly? I would have never known that about you. I know, but if I didn't say it, somebody (laughs) might be like, stop it. No, I don't believe that. It's just a term. But that's what happened there. David was his little, like, homemaker. Right. But... Within a year of moving to Melrose Avenue, their relationship became strained. Now, there are more home movies that you can, that I have also seen, that feature Dennis being sharp and demanding, insulting David and ordering him around. In one of them, he's filming him, like, half naked on a couch, and Dennis is yelling at him, like, no, you're supposed to pan from the feet up slowly. It's terrible. That image is in my head forever now. I can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. Uh, The men began to sleep in separate beds and both began to bring home casual sexual partners. 
David insisted Dennis had never been violent towards him, but he regularly berated him because David's still around. Dennis later stated that following a heated argument in May of 1977, he demanded that David leave their home. So David and Dennis have an argument. This is what Dennis says. And Dennis says, get out. But David later informed investigators that he had chosen to end the relationship and left on his own accord. And I believe him. I do, yeah. Because he had no reason to lie, as far as I know. And he's not a terrifying narcissist like Dennis Nilsson is, who would say that kind of thing to preserve his own image. Oh, I broke up with him. He didn't break up with me. Right, and nothing in Dennis's history would lead me to believe that he would let somebody go. Yeah, you're right, 100%. So over the next year and a half, Dennis has a few, like, half-hearted relationships, but nothing significant. He began to withdraw from society, working and then coming home to listen to music, and get staggeringly drunk. He might go out to the bars at night to consume his increasingly high quota of alcohol, but he would end up at home alone listening to his records until one night, his routine changed. Dennis met 14-year-old Stephen Holmes on December 30th, 1978 at the Cricklewood Arms Pub. Cute name for a bar. Stephen had tried to purchase alcohol but had been unsuccessful. And he wandered towards the door. As he wandered towards the door, I'm sorry, he met Dennis, who had been drinking steadily for hours and only left his house seeking companionship. So Dennis, like, steeled his nerves and said, tonight... Gotta stop just being drunk at home and passing out. I'm gonna go to a bar and I'm meeting a guy and I'm not coming home until I come home with a dude. And he picked a 14-year-old boy. Ugh. Yeah. Dennis assessed Stephen and assumed he was 17, which is still a child, so that's not helping anything. Dennis spoke to Stephen and brought and bought him a drink. This 14-year-old. He was Dennis was rather charming when he wanted to be, and that's how he gets all of his victims. Mm-hmm. He's just nice and he talks to them. And Stephen was just enthralled by the coolness of an older man taking interest in him. So he really felt awesome. And the fact that he was being given alcohol. So you're 14, someone's giving you a drink and an older man is is into you. You're going to be like, oh my God, I'm amazing. (laughs) After a drink, Dennis invited Stephen back to his house for more drinks and to listen to music. It didn't take much for young Stephen to get extremely drunk and fall asleep with Dennis together in his bed. They don't, like, have sex or anything. They just fall asleep in his bed. In the morning, Dennis awoke extremely excited to find Stephen still there, but his happiness was quickly replaced by paralyzing fear when he realized that when Stephen woke up, he might leave. Being sober, Stephen might realize that he was in a strange older man's bed and run out of there as fast as he could, and Dennis could not have that. Dennis grabbed one of his neckties and strangled Stephen until he was unconscious then filled a bucket with water and submerged Stephen's head until he had drowned. Drowned in a bucket of water. <sighs> After that, Dennis bathed and dressed Stephen's body. Some sources say he dressed him. Some sources say he stayed naked. I'm pretty sure he stayed naked, but I included that because I read it somewhere. Um, before masturbating over his body twice and then putting him under the floorboards in his kitchen. Dennis never had penetrative sex with Stephen during the entire eight months he kept his rotting corpse as he thought it would ruin his beautiful and pristine body. He viewed his body as, like, too good to actually be penetrated. 
After eight months had passed and the body was clearly decomposed beyond hope, Dennis took Stephen's remains out into the garden and burned them in a bonfire. This would mark the beginning of a ritual for Dennis and a four-year murder spree that would claim many young lives. Dennis did not like to be alone and commented in an interview that after Stephen's murder, he, quote, started down the avenue of death and possession of a new kind of flatmate. Fuck off. I know. They're not your roommates, you piece of shit. On October 11th, 1979, Dennis attempted to murder a student from Hong Kong named Andrew Ho, whom he met in St. Martin's Lane pub and lured to his flat with the promise of sex. So this guy wanted to sleep with him. Now, I have to go back and say, like, Dennis Nelson is not a bad-looking guy. We told you he looks Mm -hmm. like David Tennant. Yeah, and I saw some pictures of him younger too yeah he's, when, he, when he's like put together yeah he, he does have his good facial structure yeah he's handsome people would want to sleep with him he's very scottish looking he is indeed yeah. but he was in that area so he was yeah um but no like i i say that just because it shit when i think of a monster like that i think how could anyone ever possibly want to sleep with him but that they don't look the way you want them to look, as I said in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Just like Jeffrey Dahmer was an attractive guy, and lots of guys wanted to sleep with him. Ted Bundy, I would, I would still have probably said yes to Ted Bundy. That's yeah. they happen to not look the way we want them to look, and I just wanted to repeat that because. And when they are smart and can carry yeah. a conversation, yeah, and witty and fun, and, and apparently when Dennis Nilsson turned it on, mm-hmm. he was very charming, and, and he had a job. So, and he had a job and, and a house. a place to live. Yeah, so he was like And a, he knew how to cook. Man. Maybe we should have been we, with Dennis well, Nilsson. <laughs> I guess we know how we're ending this one. <laughs> that's, that's how we would be dead. Yeah. <laughs> um, Dennis then attempted to strangle Andrew, who managed to flee from his flat and reported the incident to police. Dennis was questioned in relation to the incident, but Andrew decided not to press charges. At this point in time, as we mentioned, being gay was still challenging and something a lot of people wanted to keep a secret. So in pressing charges, Andrew would have to admit the things he did not wish to be public knowledge, and so he let the incident go. Carl Stoddard's case is much the same, and we'll get into Carl in the second half because he does testify in, in mm-hmm. Dennis's case. But it also didn't go very far with him. Right. Two months after the incident with Andrew Ho, on the 3rd of December, 1979, Dennis met 23-year-old Canadian student named Kenneth Ockenden in a West End pub. He was probably so polite. I know. He was probably the nicest boy. Upon learning that Kenneth was a tourist, Dennis offered to show him some London landmarks, and Kenneth enthusiastically accepted. Yeah. Landmarks like his Mm -hmm. dick. Also, I always see Kenneth the page when I say this because Jack McBrayer is constantly in our podcast, apparently. Yeah. His name is Kenneth. And he's so young and blonde and enthusiastic. And he was from like a a big family. Yeah. Um, Like in Parliament. He was like. Oh, was he somebody? Yeah. yeah, He was like. We'll get into that. Probably in part two. But no, go ahead. Well, so he he was um, he was a tricky one because he's a cold case, actually. When they brought him in. Interesting. And so people were looking for this They, were, they just were looking him. in Canada. Yeah, and he had a girlfriend back home. Oh, and no. he was on, on travel, whatever they call that. Like, he was just traveling. Mm-hmm. And then he was supposed to come back and never did. And so they looked for him. And he was from a family with a lot of money, mm. very well known. And, um, and they never found him. So when they 
connected when Dennis said his name, they were like, are you serious? Because it was a big deal for their their police department. Oh, shit. And they were like, this was, we never found this guy. And if we bring this in, is this going to be like humiliating or or something good? Like, are we going to get this guy or not? And so it was a very, uh, it was a touchy one. And we can, uh, depending on where we are with that in the next episode, we might get more into him. We can but- talk more of that in the next episode because that sounds like part of the legal proceedings. Yeah. That is very interesting. There's so much information in this case that mm-hmm. I can only go so far. So I'm glad that you have these little things. Yeah. Because I found myself wanting to go off on these, like, look at these people mm-hmm. and be like, I, you can't. You have like a hundred pages. <laughs> yeah. He would have been, he would have been the high profile. Right. So they wanted to keep that private. But I think that um, there, there was. There's another one whose parents were looking for him, which I'll get into. And it's very sad. But yeah. With him, it was tough because there was a. Um, a biographer that was trying to work on this case with Dennis. So yeah. when he found that out, it was there. There's so much stuff. So anyway, okay. go on. Go on okay. with yours. <laughs> Dennis then invited Kenneth to his house for dinner and some more drinks. Of course, the pair stopped at an off-license, it's like an, a liquor store, uh, en route to Dennis's residence and purchased whiskey, rum, and beer. That's a lot of booze. Kenneth insisted on kicking in some money for the alcohol because he was a polite Canadian. Once they were back at his apartment, Dennis mixed them some extremely strong drinks and began playing Kenneth music from his collection, which Kenneth seemed quite interested in. This was done through a pair of headphones because Dennis was like, you know, you have to like totally experience Mm -hmm. it. So you have to wear the headphones and be ensconced in the music. And at one point, Dennis looked over at Kenneth while he was distractedly listening to music, took the cord from the headphones, wrapped it around Kenneth's neck, and strangled him until he was dead, dragging him to the floor at one point by the cord around his neck. After that, Dennis picked up the headphones, listened to the rest of the song, and had another drink. You know, real casual evening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The following day, Dennis bought a Polaroid camera and photographed Kenneth's body in suggestive poses, which is an extremely dumber move. Now, I have a couple sources also that said that when he was into masturbating to his own headless reflection, he also took pictures of himself um, where he looked like a corpse. So then right. he would have a picture of a corpse, but it was really just himself. Mm-hmm. I also heard he would, like, make himself look dead. Yeah, in these pictures. He would, okay. like, doll himself up to look dead, mm-hmm. take a picture of himself, and then use it to masturbate with. because Not with. He's not, like... Yeah. <laughs> using the actual piece of paper, but, like, mm-hmm. he would look at it um, because it looked like a dead body, and that's the only way he could get photos of dead bodies was to make himself look like one. Right. That was back in the weird painting days. Ugh. I know. There are so many, like, little bits of information that are maybe in some sources and not all sources, mm-hmm. but that I think that one is true. No, I definitely think it is. I think it is, too. I, somehow I, I left it out at the point where I was talking about that, but, yes, he used to make himself look like a dead body and take pictures of himself and then jerk it to those pictures. So mm-hmm. that's a fun – that's fun. He would – he photographed Kenneth's body, though, in suggestive poses, like I said. At one point, he posed him spread eagle above him on his bed as he watched television for several hours. You know, like that painting he so admired in the army. Ugh. After this fun afternoon, Dennis would wrap Kenneth's body in plastic bags and store the corpse beneath the floorboards. On approximately four different occasions over the next two weeks, Dennis would retrieve Kenneth's body from beneath his floorboards and then sit the body in an armchair alongside him as he watched TV and had cocktails. So see, he just wanted a buddy. 
<sighs> so to me, and maybe I'm maybe you don't feel agree with me, but I think you're going to. I think it's weirder when he's just hanging out with it than when he's doing weird sex things with it. Yes. If you have some weird proclivity that you are indulging because you have a dead body, it's not understandable, but it like seems to fit. But when you're just like watching a show with it, that is crazier to me. Yeah, when you just feel comfortable. Yeah, you're just like, this is my friend. Mm-hmm. It's fine. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, and we'll get into it later, because but he smells so bad. For sure. T- and this is a few days, too. Yeah. So it, it, the bodies start to smell within, you know, a brief amount of hours. This is going to be gross. Real gross. Right. And he, he says in, like, following interviews that once the person, like, the, he killed the person, then he just had this vessel that could be any fantasy he wanted it to be. Right. So basically he had, like, a giant doll. Yes. To make whatever he wanted it to be. And in that... Occasion, he just wanted some company to watch TV with. Oh. Yeah. Dennis killed his third victim. This is, I hate this one so much. I hate them all, but I, this one really upset me. 16-year-old Martin Duffy. On May 17th, 1980, Martin was a catering student from Birkenhead who had hitchhiked to London without his parents' knowledge on May 13th after being questioned by the British Transport Police for evading his train fare. For four days, Martin had slept roughly near Euston Railway Station, before Dennis found him, as he returned from a union conference in Southport. Martin was both exhausted and hungry and accepted Dennis's offer for a meal and a place to sleep for the evening, like one would if they had been sleeping on the street. Now, this might seem like Martin is a desperate and homeless person or one of the gay disenfranchised youth we talked about, but he wasn't. Martin's parents speak at length in the documentary I Am Des, which I will provide links to, Um, And he was a kind and loving boy who on a couple of occasions had just snuck off to London to go on like an adventure. He wanted to try to find um, like brief bits of of catering or like chef work. Okay. And just because it was exciting and he was 16 and it was a city. He loved cooking. As I said, he was a catering student and his father had bought him a set of really nice chef knives. Martin had taken the knives with him, like I said, hoping to find a temporary job and ran into some tough luck. Dennis took advantage of his situation. But it should never be said that there weren't people at home looking for Martin because there were. His family missed him and continues to do so horribly. The night after, Martin had fallen asleep in Dennis's bed. Dennis fashioned a ligature around his neck and then simultaneously sat on Martin's chest and tightened the ligature with, quote, great force until Martin became unconscious and then dragged him into the kitchen and drowned him in his sink. Jesus. Yeah. Drowning because of his own near-death experience and his grandfather's death at sea seems to needlessly come back again and again. I think some part of his brain thinks it's kind of an ideal death because of that. Mm -hmm. He could have easily just strangled Martin until he was dead, and and he's done it in other cases. The drowning was a conscious choice. Dennis then bathed Martin's body, which he remarked being, quote, the youngest I had ever seen. Which is so disgusting, I can't even begin. Why is that a thing we want to hear, Dennis? I am curious, like I said before, I am usually curiously empathetic to a fault. And let me tell you, like, I, the more we, further we go, the more I hate this guy. Yes. Which is why I like that he's so open, because I I want to hate him. Yeah, that's a good point. Martin's body was first placed upon a kitchen chair, then upon the bed on which he had been strangled. Dennis kept him like a boyfriend and kissed him and spoke sweetly to him and masturbated over him. For two days, Martin's body was kept in a cupboard before Dennis noted signs of bloating, and therefore, quote, he went straight under the floorboards. 
After this, Dennis would take Martin's luggage ticket from the train ride he couldn't get on because he didn't have enough money. He only had enough to check his luggage. And then he would go pick up his things from the train station so that he could essentially just steal them. He Mm. took Martin's briefcase, which he used for work daily. They found it afterwards. Martin's Martin's parents were like, "That's, that's our son's briefcase. And he got his coveted chef's knives, which he later used to dissect bodies with. Oh, that's Mm. heartbreaking. They were Martin's knives. Oh, God. Martin was in a tough situation, not a constantly tough situation. He went on an adventure that didn't go the way he thought because he ran out of money. And then this happened. He wasn't someone who consciously decided to do something or was homeless by default. He just had the situation just got out of control. And it was the 80s, so he couldn't just call his parents, apparently. But they were looking for him and they were extremely distraught. So sad. Yeah. Martin was a very sweet boy. And if you watch this documentary, you will see his parents speak about him at length. And it broke my heart. Mm. Dennis Nilsson was a monster. After Martin Dennis uh, really picked up the pace, before the end of 1980, he killed a further five victims and attempted to murder one other. Only one of these victims that Dennis murdered, um, oh wait, only one of these victims who Dennis murdered, 26-year-old William David Sutherland, has ever been identified. Mm -hmm. Dennis's recollections of the unidentified victims were very vague. But he graphically could easily recall how each victim had died and just how long he kept the body before he pulled it apart. There, like, dissected them, I should say. There's that word. Because under the floorboards is not that big of a space. And he had to start cutting them up to almost fit in the space like the most disgusting game of Tetris ever. Also, they, of course, began to smell... And Dennis said in an interview that he logically assumed that the reason they smelled was because they were retaining parts that would smell, a.k.a. their entrails. So he's like, oh, it's just the, like, organs and entrails and stuff. It's, that's what smells. Not, not the whole ass rotting body. Right. Fucking dumbass. And so he would dig out their organs and throw them out in the trash or take them into the garden and burn them. Dennis recalled this task as monumentally unpleasant. If you watch the documentary, he talks about everything so off the cuff. He was like, well, I didn't like doing it. I had to do it because it smelled. Right. I would get blinding drunk. That's what he says, blind drunk, before doing it. And then he would have to take breaks while he was doing this to run outside into the fresh air and heave into the bushes. Right. He stands by that the most heinous part of all of this is that he killed them. Anything after that is, like, whatever. Yeah. He's just like, it's just something I did. But, like, the fact that I killed them is the problem. That's what, like, that's how yeah. he stands. That's how he stands about it. So weird. So to him, he's just like, everything else were just, like, things that I had and to do. And he says in every case that he didn't decide he was going to kill them until, like, the minute before he did it. Right. He says nothing was premeditated. Mm-hmm. All these people were just guys he liked and picked up at a bar. Okay. No, I'm sorry. For one moment, I don't believe you because you have a history of doing it so many times. Right. So and he's just going out each time just like, I really hope that this is the one. This <laughs> one's going to just be a fun time. Yeah. Oh, yeah, shit. I did it again. again. <laughs> like, also, how do – okay, so after a couple of them. Right. How does anyone enter that 
home. Don't it's know. just a, it's a little flat. And just wait, we'll I'll describe it as it rolls along further. Like it gets horrible. I like how could anybody even get up the stairs? Well, I also think that they're very well. Th- this first one is this one's a, that's just that's on the, the first floor. floor. Yeah, this is. But I think they're very drunk. Although I would be like, it smells Maybe. like dead. I know. <laughs> like, well, they probably, it smells like crap in here, sir. <laughs> he was like, here's some more drinks. Listen to music. Yeah, I dead. guess maybe. I don't know, but I think that's always a mystery too because he doesn't go through like extreme efforts to sanitize it or anything. Mm-hmm. Like he just leaves them there rotting. Oh, gosh. One unidentified victim that Dennis killed in November... Um, Dennis recalled had moved his legs in a cycling motion as he was strangled, but he couldn't tell you what his name was or what he looked like. Dennis is known to have, yep, have been absent from work between the 11th and 18th of November, and that's documented, and this was likely due to this particular murder. So it's traced back. Yeah, he could tell you, like, extreme tiny details about, like, the process of their death, but not what they looked like or what their name was. And he says it so calmly. Probably, too. Very like casual. I was, I was out of work. He also today. sounds like he's talking to an idiot the whole time. Yes. When he's talking to the police, he's like, well, I just killed them because that's how you do it. Yeah. Yeah, you have to put them under the floorboards. What do you think I'm going to do? He has this horrible tone of voice where he just sounds like what he did made perfect sense, and the police are assholes for asking him why. Right. I want to strangle him all the time. <laughs> Ugh. He'd probably like it. He much. probably would. No, he just wants to strangle other people. Another unidentified victim Dennis had successfully attempted to resuscitate before sinking to his knees and sobbing and then standing just as spit at his own image in the mirror. Oh, my God. I know. And on yet another occasion, he had laid in bed alongside the body of an unidentified victim as he listened to the classical theme, Fanfare for the Common Man, before bursting into tears. Oh, Christ. So he's doing great, you guys. Totally sane. (laughs) He's such an asshole. Why are you doing these weird, dramatic things? No one's watching. You're a monster. (laughs) Get out of here. Who was that for? Who was that for? You don't hate yourself. You fucking love yourself. It is obvious when you talk about yourself. I know I told you I was going to get mad. Yeah. That's just, and again, we only know this happened because he said it happened. Exactly. That's what's even more infuriating. Yeah. So this could just be event he concocted in his head to make himself look like a sad, sympathetic, mentally ill person. I hated myself, so I spit on myself in the mirror. Maybe you did not at all. (gasps) I know. It makes me so mad. So now, while all that totally cool and not insane at all stuff was going on, under the floorboards, corpse, corpse Tetris had begun to attract bugs. Ew. hmm That's the worst part. I hate this part. <laughs> I want to throw up. Gotta say it. Maggots began crawling up from under the floorboards, mm. and flies buzzed relentlessly around in the fetid air. Dennis knew this... Just wasn't a great thing. So one night he got screaming drunk and dragged them all out into the garden to throw on a large bonfire he had made. In his altered state, he was, like I said, very drunk, he figured that the rancid scent of burning bodies would attract attention. So he threw a tire on the fire for good measure. I can't imagine what that smelled like, but I imagine it was most certainly the worst thing ever in the world. For sure. And what's worse is that during this time, three children had passed by and, and like, a random guy and seen 
Dennis by his enormous stinking bonfire. And they never said anything to anyone because they just thought he was having a fire in his yard. Like the man, the kids were never identified, but right. the man said it just smelled like cooking meat. Okay. So I guess that was pre-tire. Yeah. <sighs> Those poor kids. Can you imagine like they later found out what that was? Because you know they had to have. They had to have connected that later. On January 4th, 1981, Dennis encountered an unidentified man who he, man who he described for investigators as, quote, 18-year-old and blue-eyed. A young Scott. Sure, he was 18, Dennis. Sure. He met this guy at the Golden Lion Pub in Soho, and he lured him to his Melrose Avenue flat with the challenge um, to, to a drinking game. So he's like, or we're going to have a drinking contest. Come back to my apartment. And the guy was like, yeah, drinking contest. After Dennis strangled him with a tie, because of course he did, and subsequently placed his body beneath the floorboards, Dennis informed his employers that he was ill and unable to attend work on January 12th so that he could dissect both this victim and another unidentified victim he had killed about a month earlier. Got to take off work sometimes. Right. He's, so did he's Dahmer. Behind. Dahmer had to take off too. Yeah. By April, Dennis had killed two further unidentified victims, one of whom he described as an English skinhead who he had met in Leicester Square, as I believe how you pronounce that. And the other he described as, quote, Belfast boy. Okay. Now I read, I listened to one account where they said the skinhead had uh, a dotted line tattooed across his throat that said, cut here. Mm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true. It's only, it's only mentioned in one place. Yeah, I don't know. So, but, you know. Whatever, just to add to your images. The final victim to be murdered at Melrose Avenue was 23-year-old Malcolm Barlow, another one that's very, very sad, whom Dennis discovered slumped against a wall outside his home on September 17, 1981. Dennis asked Malcolm if he was all right, and Malcolm told him that he had epilepsy and that his medication had made his legs go weak, which is not a great sign with your medication. So Dennis told Malcolm that he should get to the hospital, and he took him there to receive treatment. So he was like, oh, you got to go to the hospital. He dropped him off and left. Okay. The following day, foolish and kind Malcolm, after he was released to the hospital, returned to Dennis's house to thank him. And was like, your house smells. I'm leaving. Bye. Nope. He was invited in and after eating a meal, began drinking rum and Cokes before falling asleep on the sofa. Dennis then, of course, manually strangled Malcolm as he slept before putting his body beneath his kitchen sink the following morning. In mid-1981, Dennis's landlord decided to renovate 195 Melrose Avenue. Woohoo! Those subfloors are probably going to be fun. And asked him to move out. Dennis was initially resistant to the proposal, but accepted an offer of 1,000 pounds from his landlord in exchange for his exit. Yeah, leave! He's a fucking... He moved into the attic flat at 23D Cranley Gardens in the Muswell Hill des- District, uh, Muswell Hill District sorry, of North London on October 5th, 1981. The day before he vacated the property, Dennis burned the dissected bodies of his last five victims um, that he killed at the Melrose place on another giant bonfire in the garden and again made sure to throw an old tire on it for luck or grossness. I don't know. He thought somehow thought that masked the smell, but a tire smell is so much worse. And cooking, which disgustingly enough is what burning human flesh would smell like is not something that would alert you to disaster no you'd be like somebody's grilling right which from other things i've read is that's what that smells like so whatever he burned a tire at cranley gardens dennis had no access to a garden though 
and he lived on the top floor, so he couldn't hide any bodies beneath his floorboards either. In March of 1982, Dennis encountered 23-year-old John Howlett while drinking in a pub near Leicester Square. John was lured to Dennis's flat with more booze, which is like always his bait. There, both Dennis and John drank as they watched a movie, and before John fell asleep in a bed in Dennis's front room. They don't say it's like his bedroom bed. They say it's in the front room. I don't know whether he slept there or he just had like an extra bed, but that's Mm -hmm. where it was. An hour later, Dennis unsuccessfully tried to wake John up and then sat on the edge of the bed for a little while drinking rum while slowly deciding, "Mm, yeah, I'm going to kill him. Following a ferocious struggle in which John attempted to strangle Dennis because he wasn't—he was sleeping, and when he woke up, he had more of his faculties than most people did, and he was bigger too. Dennis strangled John into unconsciousness with an upholstery strap before returning to his living room. On three occasions, so they had three separate fights in the following ten minutes. Dennis unsuccessfully attempted to kill John after noting he had resumed breathing before deciding to fill his bathtub with water. And drown him. For over a week after John's murder, Dennis had fingerprint-shaped bruises on his neck from John and the fight they had. Oh, wow. Nobody thought maybe we should get into what those are? Okay. In June of 1982, Dennis encountered a 27-year-old named Graham Allen. Graham accepted Dennis's invitation to dinner at his home. Don't go to people's houses when you don't know them. Dennis cooked omelets and then strangled Graham as was his way. Dennis kept his body in the bathtub for a total of three days before he began the task of dissecting Graham's body upon the kitchen floor. Later in an interview, the police would ask Dennis if this task was messy and how on earth he managed the cleanup on his kitchen floor, cutting up a dead body. And an extremely put-out Dennis, as I said, he always sounds annoyed, told the police as though they were idiots that he's like, well, no, it wasn't bloody because after a body's been dead for a few days, the blood congeals and just is in the tissue. So there's no blood. What's Obviously, there's no blood. He was so mad. And the cops were like, okay. Oh, sorry. You you butchered a body. There was no cleanup. He's like, you put down some bags. It's fine. He's he's 100% the worst. Because at least when you get interviews with Jeffrey Dahmer, he's very repentant and very, like, ashamed. He's like, not that he was, like, a great dude. He obviously wasn't. But he's like, oh, man, like, I did horrible things. Right. He's not like, yeah, I did them, you fucking idiot. Oh, I get so mad. This one makes me so mad. Huh? But this is true and obvious, but not something any normal human would think about. Like, it's science that that's what happens. I get it. But I would never be like, oh, well, obviously there was no mess. On January 26, 1983, Dennis killed his final victim, 20-year-old Stephen Sinclair. At his flat, um, at Dennis's flat, Stephen fell asleep because he picked him up in a bar, I guess, in a drug and alcohol-induced stupor in an armchair as Dennis sat listening to the rock opera opera Tommy, which is a fun fact for me because I've been in the musical version of Tommy. Fantastic. Yeah, and I know all those songs by heart. (laughs) Wonder which one it was. Dennis approached Stephen, knelt before him, and said to him, Oh, Stephen, here I go again. Before strangling him with a necktie, which had been extended with a rope. After this, Dennis noted crepe bandages upon each of Stephen's wrists. Dennis removed these to discover several deep slash marks where Stephen had recently tried to kill himself. Dennis found this comforting, thinking that Stephen was obviously suffering and that he did him a favor. Following his usual ritual of bathing the body, Dennis laid Stephen's body upon his bed, applied talcum powder to the body, 
then arranged three mirrors around the bed before himself while lying naked alongside him and did some fucked up stuff, I'm sure. Several hours later, he turned Stephen's head towards him before kissing him on the forehead and saying, Good night, Stephen. Dennis then fell asleep alongside the body. Stephen's body was subsequently dissected with various dismembered parts wrapped in plastic bags and stored in either a wardrobe, a tea chest, or a drawer located beneath the bathtub, which is the scene we entered this episode with. The bags used to seal Stephen's remains were sealed with the crepe bandages that had been on his wrists. (gasps) Ew. Which is gross and misguidedly an attempt at being poetic. And I fucking hate it. I hate that. Because he's the worst. But what did he do with the rest of the body parts and how did they end up lodged in the drain? Because if we're going to come full circle, we have to figure out how that happened. Dennis attempted to dispose of the flesh, internal organs, and smaller bones of all three victims killed at Cranley Gardens by flushing their dissected remains down his toilet. He actually had done this with some of his victims at Melrose Avenue, too but I guess they never caught him for that. He also um, boiled their heads, and he did this at Melrose Avenue too. Not because he was going to eat them or anything. He boiled their heads, hands, and feet so that he could remove the flesh of these sections more easily, and it also, like, vaporized connective tissue and brain matter and stuff. Obviously, your brain's not going to totally disappear, but it will be smaller if you boil it. And then these pieces would be softer, and, like, he could pulverize the skull and the tissue and flush it down the toilet. Ugh. On February 4th, 1983, and I guess he did write a letter too, but he also made phone calls, Dennis wrote a letter of complaint to estate agents complaining that the drains at Cranley Gardens were blocked and that the situation for both himself and the other tenants at the property was pretty intolerable. And he also made phone calls because he, there is a guy interviewed in the thing that said he spoke to him regarding it mm-hmm. and that he was like, again, used that same voice. He was very put out when he talked to him on the phone. He was like, I don't know why our drains won't work. This is ridiculous. You have to fix it. Right. Insane. Uh huh. <laughs> and here we are, right back at where we started. <sighs> Obviously, after the plumbers had been out, uh, after Dino Rod was there mm-hmm. and inspected the drain, it was Dennis that went out that night and tried to scoop everything out of the um, yeah. pipes and cover his tracks. Um, but he was unsuccessful because he didn't get all the pieces. Right. Probably because he was screaming drunk and it was dark. But that is what we have for part one. Oh man, we're gonna end it now. I know, <laughs> like 10 hours in. Oh okay. my gosh. Yeah, so um, man, that story's I, I, yeah, I'm only gonna get angrier, yeah. <laughs> I think in the second half. Well, so the second half, we'll get to talk more about the um, police investigation side, right? Yes, and, and his, his and, full confession, like he does, okay. he does say like, he gives reasons not, I don't. I, I struggle with causing calling them reasons. He right. he talks about his process. Yes, a lot more and what he's thinking when he's doing it. Mm-hmm. And so we'll go into that and we'll go into um, psychologically what could have been going on with him, mm-hmm. and we'll go into the legal proceedings, and then what happened to him afterwards. Because obviously mm-hmm. he's not still roaming the land, right? And um, and you mentioned some interesting stuff about his defense. Of course, he tried an insanity defense. There's a lot of stuff surrounding that. So, yeah. spoiler alert. Oh well, you can cut that. <laughs> I didn't say the other thing. No, they all try to say they're crazy. All of them. They I always know. do. They're always like, ah, oh, I, I was crazy when I did it. 
Yeah, but his was specifically Well, we'll get into that. Yeah it's, yeah, it's interesting, and we'll talk about it next time. So there's a lot more to unpack with him, but those are just, like, the hard copy events of his timeline and what, what Dennis Nelson did. Oh, man, I decided to come back on something I thought was just going to be interesting because there was a miniseries about it, but it turned out to be so much longer than I thought. And then I should have realized, because I had listened to podcasts about him before, if you want to hear, like, the grossest one ever, you can listen to the episode of Monstro about him. <laughs> their their thing is like, let's make it as gross and graphic yeah. as possible and let's make you extremely uncomfortable and sick. Yeah. Some people love that. That is fine. I think Jack Luna writes beautiful prose about disgusting things, so. <laughs> he has other podcasts, too. I like Jack Luna's work a lot. I'm not here to pan him in whatsoever. But, yeah, you can listen to that if you want to hear, like, after we're done, a really graphic <laughs> retelling of it. There you go. Thanks, Sally. You're very welcome. <laughs> um, I definitely want to toast just all of his victims. There's so many. So many. And so many that are unidentified, which is horrible. Mm-hmm. And you know what? To, to Dino, Dino Rod. Rod. <laughs> it's got to be Dino Rod. We had so much good stuff about him. Cheers. Yeah. You, oh, that was so delicate. It was so, well, I'm drinking. Whisper an angel. That's right. <laughs> So cheers to Dino Rod, and please tune in next Tuesday for the second half of Dennis Nelson's case. We, I, I would also like to toast to um, just a record number of voter turnout in the United States. Yeah. People kind of realized that their voice finally matters, and they went out and voted in masses, and that hasn't happened in a really long time. This election had record-breaking voter turnout, and that's really cool. And I hope that all of you guys went out there and were part of it, and therefore the results that a great number of us have recently been celebrating are partially because of you. Yes. And me and Leslie yeah. and all of us. So consider that a victory for for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to say that and, and um, big extra love to Philly. I love you guys. Thank you for being badass and voting. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! And uh, to be continued. Woo! <laughs> Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more.